pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. It is 5pm in the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Marcus Ashworth. We have plenty to discuss. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the US House, landing in Taipei around an hour ago. Huge provocation for Beijing. How will China respond? A key question the financial markets are now watching. Broadly, though, equity markets in the States fairly mixed. The Nasdaq is up by around two-tenths of one percent. The S&P is going nowhere in a hurry. Absolutely flat. Pretty similar story here in Europe as well equity markets not really doing very much today what we have seen is a strong pickup in yields the u.s five-year is up by nearly 15 basis points today european yields have snapped back as well uh, they did so as a result of a number of comments that we've seen today from fed speakers including mary daly talking about the fact that the fed still has a lot of work to do a relatively um okay labor market it appears in the united states persists the jolts number came down a little bit that's job openings we await the employment report marcus on Friday. Yeah. The big employment report is what it's all about, isn't it? Um, <laughs> very interesting uh, column out today from uh, Albert Edwards of SockGen, basically saying that uh, you shouldn't be looking at the payroll report and it gives you false signals. You're looking at the gap between the household survey and the payroll and the household survey is not showing anywhere near as much strength. In fact, from February, March onwards, it's declined. So uh, just a bit of bad news there for you. Um, yeah, don't get because- too excited about payrolls. Because we've got a lot of bad news floating around at the moment. It does seem to be just having to deal with an awful lot right now. European electricity prices, the Rhine level, there's all kinds of things don't, we could be focusing. Don't yep. speak to anyone about Germany at any, any risk. There's all bad news. It, it, does like a, Rhine. it does seem to be an awful lot of bad news at the moment as well. We probably should talk about UK politics. We'll do that as well a little bit later on. First up, we're going to talk about what is happening uh, in Taiwan. Let's get the headlines now from Charlie. I thank you very much. Do you want to begin, though, with UK politics? Liz Truss ditching her plan to align UK public sector pay to regional living costs following a furious backlash from Conservative MPs who said it reneged on the party's electoral policy uh, uh, promise to level up economic opportunity nationwide. The foreign secretary is the front runner in the race with Rishi Sunak to become the next prime minister. She had announced the proposal yesterday, saying it could save as much as £8.8 billion a year, but following intense Tory criticism, her campaign team put out a statement saying there had been a, quote, willful misrepresentation of the plan. The Italian carmaker Ferrari is raising its outlook for 2022 sales as sales in China and the U.S. fuels better-than-expected earnings in the second quarter. Ferrari is in the midst of a broader shift toward electrification, turning its historic factory in northern Italy into a hub for battery-powered cars. If this sounds all too familiar, it is British Airways extending a halt on ticket sales on short-haul flights out of London Heathrow by another week to August 15th, adding to the summer's escalating travel chaos. The extension of the moratorium comes a day after the IAG unit blocked ticket sales through August 8th, blaming daily passenger capacity limits imposed by Heathrow to help cope with a staffing crisis. The carrier says it's halting sales, quote, to maximize rebooking options for existing customers, given the restrictions imposed on us. That is the latest from the news desk. Lots going on. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Let's return to the story uh, that I think markets have been focusing largely on today. Uh, it's interesting to see such a big response to geopolitics. Um, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, has now touched down in Taipei. She is going to be meeting uh, the Taiwanese president tomorrow. This is a huge provocation for Beijing. Uh, Beijing responding, indicating that it's going to be conducting missile drills off the Taiwanese coast over the next couple of days. It's going to encircle Taiwan as part uh, of, a main, of, a, uh, of a military drill as well. This is a significant escalation at a time when tension between Beijing and Washington uh, has been becoming increasingly frozen. So where does that leave us and how big a risk is Nancy Pelosi running here in terms of the the, um, the geopolitical risk that could emanate from it? Uh, joining us now is Ian Marlowe. Uh, he is a senior national security reporter joining us from D.C. Ian, how is Washington thinking about this trip? We haven't had the president pushing back uh, on what Nancy Pelosi is doing. Is this, does this represent a shift in U.S. policy? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of attempts from Washington to play down the uh, foreign policy implications of Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, saying that it doesn't change the status quo on Taiwan or U.S. policy towards Taiwan. They've been very, very clear on that. Uh, Also very clear on the messaging that they don't control Pelosi's schedule. It's a co-equal branch of government, etc. That message has obviously not gone through to Beijing. And from the very beginning, the, the rhetoric from Chinese officials uh, in the foreign ministry and defense ministries in particular uh, has been, uh, you know, very strident. Um, they've been promising that they won't sit idly by if a visit goes through. Um, and so you've got a situation where basically both sides felt they couldn't uh, back down on this trip. But I think in recent days, the narrative in, in Washington has shifted a tiny bit uh, with officials sort of saying, you know, refusing to confirm that Pelosi was actually visiting for security reasons, but saying, you know, if she does, and there's some kind of escalation or response, that's entirely on China. That's entirely on Beijing. It's not that, uh, you know, they were trying to say that her trip, uh, it's not even unprecedented since uh, Newt Gingrich went in, in the, in the mid nineties. So, um, they've been trying to say, look, this isn't escalation. This is a continuation of the status quo. You know, other members of Congress have visited Taiwan, um, you know, this year and, and, and in recent years. And so this doesn't represent something that's an escalation, but obviously that's not how it's been seen in Beijing. Can I ask a stupid question here? What is she actually there for? What's she trying to achieve? Because it's quite clear to me the Biden administration is doing its best to distance itself. Everyone from the military establishment, CIA onwards are going, why on earth is this happening? The world's going, what are you doing this for? That's a really good question, actually. And I think that's a lot of the criticism you hear, uh, you know, in, in parts of the U.S. establishment as well. Um, you know, people questioning, you know, relations with Taiwan are good right now. The relationship with China, you know, couldn't be considered, you know, very good, but at least was on a, an even keel. And there'd been lots of high-level dialogues in recent years. Um, I think there may not be so many clear foreign policy wins uh, coming out of this. I mean, a lot of people have pointed to uh, Pelosi wanting to do this, you know, for sort of 
personal or career reasons, given uh, the midterm elections coming up and the fact that she may not be House Speaker for long. She's obviously had a long career where she's engaged in, you know, in human rights advocacy, meeting Tibetans and ethnic Uyghurs, supporting Tiananmen Square, uh, you know, protesters uh, from 1989 and, and the rest of it. So this is sort of a cap uh, for her career personally. Uh, what the U.S. gets out of it, other than increased tensions with China, uh, is a lot yeah. less clear. Ian, what does that mean, though, for, for business? This is going to further throw sand in the gears, isn't it, of global trade? This is going to make finding some sort of rapprochement on tariffs, etc., that much more difficult? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think the business relations between Taiwan and the U.S. have have been pretty rock solid. There's obviously concern in Washington about the reliance on, you know, one island for, you know, the vast majority of semiconductor chips. Um, and that's something they're trying to work on. But in general, I think this, this probably does throw a little bit of sand in the gears, as you say, uh, for any sort of broader uh, rapprochement on anything uh, economic. And, and, you know, I think the markets have been a little bit moderate in terms of this and have sort of priced in a lot of uh, what the Chinese response might be. Um, I think it's just now how long the response lasts, how long these high, heightened tensions kind of last. Ian, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for the analysis. We greatly appreciate it. Ian Marlowe joining us from Washington, D.C. Up next, we're going to pivot completely. We're going to be talking about water levels on the Rhine in Germany. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Germany, it seems, goes from bad to worse. Not only did they lose the football over the weekend, uh, but we've now got escalating power prices. Uh, We saw Germany one year forward electricity prices going through 400 megawatts an hour today. That's a new record. Uh, You've got this gas crisis that is developing rather rapidly as well. But we've also now got something of a drought And we talk about this kind of fairly periodically, but this year looks like it could be a bad one. Water levels on the Rhine, which is one of the key trade routes for Germany, linking its industrial heartland with the coast, uh, are starting to fall on the River Rhine. Joining us now to discuss, Jack Whittles from Bloomberg News. Jack, how bad is it? Uh, Hi, it's it's pretty bad out there. Um, The water level at Kau, which is a key waypoint on the river in western Germany near Frankfurt. It's the way they measure it. It's around about 60 centimetres. Uh, and when it, that measurement gets to 40 centimetres, that means that it's basically uneconomical for barges carrying commodities to sail up past Kalb further into inland Europe. So that would be a complete, pretty much a complete stop. So, I mean, in essence, you're going to have to take well, stuff you're going to put on a barge, you're going to have to put it on a train, uh, freight rail, or or a truck. Which means, are there enough trucks? Are there enough trains? You can't mm. move nasty stuff anywhere as easily on, well, certainly not on trucks, but even on on train as much as you can do it probably on a barge. Mm. I mean, this is just going to cost. Is it just going to cost more money, which is bearable, or is this a complete logistical nightmare? Because you've got to get all this stuff up to presumably Rotterdam somehow. Right. So you do have goods moving both ways. So from Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Antwerp area, right through into inland Europe. And you do have stuff going the other way from inland Europe down to that northwest European area. 
Um, I think it's both. Uh, I think it is more expensive to move it via truck and via rail rather than via barge. And I believe that there are some logistical problems as well with those uh, land-based transport forms. So it's both expensive and difficult. And also, I mean, it's not to forget that with the barges right now, even with the river still just about passable at Kalb, it's still, you can still only load a very small amount of, for example, diesel on your barge if you're shipping it through Kalb. This happens periodically. Mm -hmm. How bad is this relative to previous years? And I I talked to an industrial analyst the other day who said, yeah, they have contingency plans. They are kind of, they are aware of this risk increasingly at companies like BASF. Right. So this, uh, earlier today, it hit its lowest since 2018. And 2018, late 2018 was when it was really bad. Uh, and there was there was widespread disruption along a lot of industrial facilities along the Rhine. So that's how bad it is now in context. So is this just a massive shift back to coal, diesel usage, things like that? The whole of Germany is going to have to move away from electricity and equally, you know, getting how how is German industry going to going to cope through this? Because it seems to be it's there are he's the awful expression perfect storm, but it's coming up from all angles. Right. Is it it, shutdown time? We need a storm. Sorry, yes. We do, we do. Um, It is difficult because, you know, there there are limited alternatives to using the barges. And once the barges stop, you have to go back to those land-based forms of transport. And, you know, you've got the problems with Russia. So it isn't easy. I I don't know precisely what (laughs) BASF or, for instance, individual strategy is. Uh, We are looking into that sort of thing. But what happens with electricity production? I know that a lot of the, the, the generators have stockpiled coal. Mm. If, if the Rhine closes, mm. will Germany be able to produce enough electricity? Um, I think it will certainly be very difficult for them. Okay, that sounds like an understatement to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you really uh, think? Yeah. <laughs> Jack, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Jack Whittles joining us on the, uh, the troubles that are increasingly brewing for the German economy. That is why we are largely starting to see uh, pricing shifting in Europe quite rapidly, particularly around the ECB and the ability of the ECB to continue to raise rates. Um, Pricing shifting very rapidly in that space. Uh, Okay, you're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. In the race to become the next leader of the Conservative Party and by extension the next Prime Minister of the UK, the U-turns are out in front. Today it was the turn of Liz Truss, U-turning on plans to cut public sector pay outside of London. In fact, the polling does seem to suggest that maybe... Rishi Sunak is closing the gap on trust. That leadership um, gap, though, is quite significant uh, from Truss's point of view. Let's kick this around. I suspect I can sit back and just enjoy myself in this part of the, uh, the programme. Uh, Marcus Ashworth is here. Therese Raphael is here. Marcus, I'm going to start with you. Um, what does the Conservative Party want? Well, I've just got to ask Therese, do you, do you not think that we've got the full set of pledges now? Because... Liz Truss apparently has come out and said she's going to look into decriminalising, not paying your BBC uh, licence fee. I mean, that's just the icing on the cake for me, the cherry on the top, sorry. Um, we're, we're now at a situation where 
uh, the two different sides are sending around lists of where the other has U-turned. It's getting a little bit nasty. We know we know the ballots have gone in. I think today or yesterday they, they've arrived on, or sometime anyway this week they arrive and people often vote straight away. Though bizarrely you can change it online if you wish to. But this is the week. If you don't get it, make it count. And um, yeah, do you, I mean, how serious do you think, Therese, this, this rather strange slip up by those trusses? Because it, to my mind, you know, this regional pay board and getting at the civil service should be fundamental to her campaign. And she could have just changed it rather than reversing it. Yeah, look, I mean, this is clearly a wobble in what has been a clinically run campaign from Liz Truss that has absolutely blown away her critics who had, you know, described her as gaff-prone, robotic, um, unable to kind of keep in touch with, keep up with the sort of intellectual heft of a Rishi Sunak. And actually, you know, she has uh, won over audience after audience. But we come to this you know, very odd moment. And it, it reminds me a little bit of Theresa May's dementia tax. And, you know, it, it, you know, it was a, uh, which, you know, some people might remember was a moment in which a plan to uh, fund social care turned out to be very costly for older elderly people whose homes uh, would have been uh, counted in the, in the valuation of, of that care. And it backfired badly and they had to back off it. Now, I think what trust was, getting at here was actually quite you know reasonable and it's not new george osborne looked at it it sits around in in the treasury and it's about how do you restructure um a gargantuan civil service where pay is negotiated nationally but you have you know public servants in say newcastle in the north of the country um who are living pretty well off and you know this includes doctors and nurses um compared to to what uh, you know, the going rate is for, for, for various levels of labor there. But it was done, you know, if you, her press release actually said, you know, we, we need to test this. It would only be brought in over time. It would only apply for new employees. But actually, it just landed, you know, in the worst possible way. And she had to back off it instead of trying to defend it and explain but, it. Because quite rightly, Team Sunak pointed out, how is this going to look at the next election? Yeah, but I mean, Therese, I mean, you could, uh, one way you could spin it, and I'm no sort of... <laughs> Trussy here, but the point is, is that, you know, at least they realized the mistake and killed it stone dead rather than try and explain it, dig themselves in a bigger hole. In some senses, this is, you know, as you said, perhaps came over poorly. They didn't think it through, but they've at least not let it fester, whereas the dementia tax went on for days sure. and days with May. So, yeah. I mean, in yeah. some senses, and the one thing that caught me also is that Sunak essentially let slip that she had pushed this before in 2018 uh, when she was Chief Secretary of the Treasury and it got bounced back. So, there's a little bit of talking out of school here on re- revealing information about each other, which shouldn't be going on, or is that just all love and well, all well, fair and love and Well, we've seen that already in this. Yeah, we've seen that already in this contest in an earlier round um, when it was Trust versus Penny Mordaunt. Remember, it's, we have leaks of, uh, uh, of they love uh, Penny Mordaunt's uh, <laughs> conversation. They they have now made up. So that that tells you that blue on blue fights are you know can be put behind the candidates. Someone um, wants a job. Eventually. Look. I, I, I think this is a wobble. I don't think this is, you know, this is somehow mortally wounding for Team Trust. 
as you said, you know, they, they immediately responded to the criticism, including, I thought, importantly, from Ben Houchin, the, the very popular Teesside mayor who is, uh, of course, supporting Sunak, but who will be listened to in the party. And he came down really heavily on it and trust back down. And we've also had Sunak reverse himself on, uh, you know, on, on, on tax as well. So um, I don't think it changes the balance of this contest um, hugely, as um, you know, as you said in your introduction, there are some polls showing that it's closer than we might think. Um, but I still think it will take a lot for Sunak to turn this around. What, is, what does he need to do to turn it around? Do you think? So I think he needs to stop talking about taxes. I think he needs to stop fighting this campaign on Liz Truss's turf because he's not winning that. She is the candidate of hope, as Penny Morton said. She's the tax cutter. She's the, the boosterish candidate. And he just looks really sort of grumpy. And, um, you, you know, he's, he's promising a tax cut in seven years. Like, you know, what taxpayer is sitting around thinking, boy, you know, let's vote for him because that sounds great. So he needs to talk about things conservatives care about. And the polls show that, you know, they care about leveling up. Um, and it's not quite clear that she does. In fact, I think, you know, if we learned one thing from this public sector pay stat is that she actually doesn't care that much about leveling up. So he needs to talk about that. He needs to talk about the NHS. He needs to talk about things conservatives care about, probably apart from, um, you know, the, the, the weeds of economic policy, which just yeah. doesn't seem to be cutting through. But the, the, the leveling up thing, I mean, she just bunged, I don't know, 26, 27 billion, I mean, you know, billion here, billion there, soon doesn't matter, does it? Um, on the northern powerhouse rail. Is that not levelling up in its most purest form? Yeah, no, I think, that, I think that's a good point. And she, um, both candidates, let's just be clear, at the hustings and interviews, yep. absolutely say they're signed up for levelling up. And, you know, as we've discussed before, Marcus, the levelling up plan sounds great. It's never <laughs> had the money behind it anyhow. So I will keep saying that. You, you can are you saying we shouldn't believe everything they want, say? Guys, let's wrap it up there. Thank you very much indeed, Therese. Great stuff. Therese Raffaella, what is happening uh, on the politi- British political front. Up next, we're going to talk about the uh, the holiday front. What's happening at Heathrow? This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, 5.30 in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Marcus Ashworth. U.S. equity markets beginning to regain their poise. The Nasdaq now up by nine-tenths of one percent, nearly up a full percentage point. The S&P up by around half of a percent. Uh, this after we saw the arrival a little earlier on in the day of Nancy Pelosi in Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. The Chinese uh, are already threatening significant, significant uh, reaction to this. Uh, we'll see what transpires over the next couple of days. Uh, in a moment, we'll be talking about what is happening down at Heathrow. We'll do that, uh, try and get an idea of whether or not August is going to deliver some holidays for all of us. Uh, booking a short haul flights with BA. Looks like it could be uh, a little bit of a no-no right now, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Let's get some headlines, first of all, with Charlie Powell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Thank you very much indeed, and here's what's going on. The American House Speaker Nancy Pelosi now in Taiwan for that controversial visit, heightening tensions with China. Taiwan's president will be meeting with Pelosi. China has announced military drills encircling Taiwan from August 4th through the 7th. Also plans to conduct a missile test off the Taiwan coast. The path of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's military plane en route to Taiwan from 
Kuala Lumpur was notable for how carefully it avoided the South China Sea. Flight tracking data shows the aircraft carrying Pelosi completely avoided flying through the skies above the contested South China Sea. The number of companies filing for insolvency in England and Wales last quarter was the highest since 2009, a situation that is expected to get worse before it gets better. Sources say BNP Paribas is raising base salaries for junior bankers in the UK as the lender looks to retain talent, this according to sources. And the fund controlling the wealth of the Lego billionaire family is investing in an Icelandic company that makes fish skin dressings to treat human wounds. The Kerasis treatment was approved by the American Food and Drug Administration in 2016. It uses fish skin's fatty acids to yield natural anti-inflammatory effects that speed the healing of chronic wounds. The company says its technology is better than using human skin, which needs to be thoroughly processed to eliminate the risk of disease transmission. And now you know. That is the latest from the News Desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, I'm just kind of digesting and thinking about that story. Exactly. And the question is, would you want to be sitting next to such a patient flying on a plane? But I'm just... Uh, that, that's, that's, thank you. That's, that's the a, transition that's weird, you that's needed. A weird transition, but I'll take it. Charlie, thank you very much. My pleasure. Indeed. Uh, so, uh, as Charlie has, has led me down this route, deliberately and slightly oddly, British Airways extending uh, its halt on <laughs> ticket sales for some short-haul flights out of London Heathrow by another week. They're basically pushing it out to August 15th. Uh, this is, in some ways, adding to the summer travel chaos that we're seeing, and in some ways, maybe detracting and dealing with that travel chaos. It comes, of course, uh, after Heathrow has limited the number of passengers that can fly from Heathrow on a daily basis, limiting passenger capacity. To talk here more about this, we're joined by Sid Hath-Phillip. Sid, the fact that they're extending it to another week just adds to the confusion. They're doing it on a week-by-week basis. Why not just say, we're done for the whole of August? So I think it's it's largely to do with the fact that, one, there isn't any sort of visibility on long-term bookings, and also they're sort of cancelling proactively. So instead of actually cancelling flights and pushing people off those flights, what they're doing is restricting you from actually buying those seats. Yep. What it does mean is that it sort of deprives them of that revenue, which is so crucial in terms of last-minute passengers tend to pay much, much higher prices. And this sort of dis- detracts from that, and essentially you're left with people who've already paid months in advance and they're going to go on holiday, but it does mean that sort of profitability takes a hit. So just to clarify, I'm a businessman. I need to go and visit uh, a client in Germany or something. I normally get my BA flight from Heathrow, Terminal 5, off I go. I pay, I want to pay and go in three days' time. I'm out of luck. I'm totally, I've got to go with another airline or it's just, that what you're saying is beer. There's no price. There's no ability to, to to get access to this. It's just completely shut off from me. Is that correct? Absolutely. So at the moment, it's just I mean wow. Heathrow. So if you wanted, you could the the four other airports in London which have flights to Germany. You Marcus said he does Heathrow Terminal Five. I'll just point that one out. <laughs> yeah, but if you wanted to get get from Heathrow, you're out of luck, <laughs> or you got to get some other airline. The private jet ones next door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Farnborough. Um, in terms of what others are doing, is this mainly a BA story? I, I, 
Emirates the other day said it wouldn't abide by any of the restrictions. Uh, I talked to the CEO of Qatar Airways. He sits, he sits on the border, Heathrow, pretty disappointed with the way that the, the, the airport is handling it. Is only BA doing this or are other airlines doing this as well? So Emirates actually, after that, announced that they would stop selling seats on their flights from Heathrow. They added flights back into Stansted, which is another one of London's smaller airports, as well as their existing flights at Gatwick. And that's what they're sort of doing to get around this. But it does seem to be affecting a lot of carriers. But given the fact that British Airways is obviously the biggest airline at Heathrow, it does affect them more. I mean, we also saw today that Shaifpol Airport in Amsterdam is restricting capacity through uh, the autumn now. Uh, That's sort of, they initially talked about... Any danger that Heathrow could have to do the same thing? Heathrow has sort of said that they would they would consider it and could be required to do it until next summer. So it's really sort of, it is pretty grim out there at the moment. So Sid, just to look at, uh, I, mean, I don't like to pick up uh, Michael O'Leary, but he seems to have spotted this much quicker and acted much faster than everywhere else. And, you know, obviously Stansted, I'm sure, uh, it does seem to be a better run at, uh, airport than Heathrow. So is it as simple to say that, Heathrow, EasyJet, BA have just didn't take full advantage of the fellow scheme in the way it was meant, have let people go and haven't got uh, the uh, kept people on that they should have done or, or, or reacted quickly in time. Is it a sort of simple bad management failure to just cut just to cut costs without thinking about the contingencies? Uh, it's a it's a mix of all of the above, actually. I mean, Ryanair, ha- I mean, they've got the advantage of flying into Stansted. They also agreed to deals with their crews, which allowed them to cut salaries at the height of the pandemic and then sort of keep people on rather than firing people. And they also fly to obscure airports that nobody else flies to. So there's no real capacity <laughs> constraints there. So they've got Report. lucky on multiple fronts. Uh, coming to Heathrow, Gat- uh, Heathrow, EasyJet, uh, BA, obviously EasyJet doesn't fly from Heathrow, but they also cut massively during the pandemic and they've struggled to ramp up as they've sort of come back into the travel, sort of as travel comes back. And, and BA and Heathrow obviously are sort of trying to hire again. BA famously cut as many as 10,000 people at the height of the yep. pandemic. And so they're bringing those people back and it's taking them time. In the States, mm. we're starting to see some of the airlines. I think United have talked about this. I think Southwest have talked about this. There is early signs that maybe demand is beginning to fade. Can we expect what is happening here, Heathrow, Gatwick, Schiphol, to have a similar effect, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think it's still a little too early to say. I mean, airline CEOs are still bullish, talking up the book. They're always bullish. And they're talking about how people who've missed out on the opportunity of traveling this summer are still sort of pent up demand in waiting. But it does sort of it does sort of bring back the point that will the whole whole rising cost of living and inflation have an impact on people's wallets, and subsequently will they stop flying because of it? And the jury's still out there, but I mean we'll sort of wait and watch as we get into the summer. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Robin Hayes, the CEO of JetBlue, a little bit later on on Bloomberg Television. That's at around 8:30. Sid, great analysis of what is happening here as ever thank you very much indeed uh we're going to shift to one uh from one transport to another uh earlier on i caught up with dara koshishar he is the ceo of uber a little of that conversation next this is bloomberg this is the cable with guy johnson and alex Steele on bloomberg radio 
Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Uber stock is currently up by around 17%. The company very much now focused on profitability this year. The company out with some very strong numbers. It's uh, beat its expectations in terms uh, of profitability this time round. Uh, and it's seeing basically the number of people using its services continuing to increase, despite the fact that we are seeing this cost of living squeeze, despite the fact that actually supply of drivers is fairly limited, and actually the number of drivers driving with gas prices as high as they are uh, has been impaired as well. So revenue more than doubled to $8.1 billion in the second quarter. Emily Chang, my good friend and colleague from San Francisco, and I caught up uh, with Dara Koshishar. He is the CEO of Uber a little bit earlier on. Let's take a listen to what he had to say about the numbers. Well, to some extent, it's a continuation of the last few quarters, but we're really hitting a scale point here. Like you said, $29 billion in gross bookings, up 36% on a year-on-year basis uh, as it relates on a constant currency basis. Our EBITDA, $362 million, well above our guidance range. And the guidance that we gave forward was well above street estimates, et cetera. So an indication of anticipated strength coming. And then a really important factor for us is we're free cash flow positive, $382 million in free cash flow, uh, which is a big positive factor in our being self-sustaining and profitable going forward. And when we look at the environment, the marketplace is more balanced. The number of new drivers that we're adding in the U.S. is up over 70% on a year-on-year basis. Surge is down. ETAs are down. Uh, so the business is really hitting in all cylinders, and it's reflected in the stock price, which is great. Dara, thank you. We're, we're looking at live pictures from Taipei, where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's motorcade has just arrived at a Taiwan hotel. We're going to keep monitoring, of course, her big visit to Taiwan. I do want to ask you a little bit about the broader environment, Dara. I still hear people say uh, Uber is expensive, and we're seeing uh, Uber benefiting from this when you look at your earnings and the bottom line. How do you think about this dynamic longer term? Do you worry at all about alienating customers when they're already getting squeezed, given that this is the worst inflationary environment in Uber's history. Yeah, I think inflation is hitting all of us, whether it's grocery prices or fuel prices. And remember, uh, fuel is a big component of our driver costs. So that affects Uber prices as well. And you do see it in our results. While trips were up 24%, which is really, really healthy growth, Uh, Gross bookings were up faster than that, which indicates some inflationary effect on our results. I think the good news for us is that surge levels are actually coming down. ETAs are coming down. So as the marketplace becomes more balanced, we actually see strength in terms of trip growth going forward. And we're hoping if we do our jobs and so far so good in onboarding more and more drivers, that prices on Uber will ease going forward. At the same time, drivers will make really strong earnings as well at the same time. We've heard so many dire warnings about the economy. Jamie Dimon has said he's preparing for an economic hurricane. I just spoke to Apple CEO Tim Cook, who said you know, he plans to be deliberate in Apple spending. You've said in the past that you think Uber is recession resistant. Do you still believe that uh, if we continue to see these down, downward trends? And what is Uber's strategy to navigate continuing downward trends? Well, I think you're certainly seeing it in our results, which is uh, there have been a bunch of earnings re- results out there, and, and sometimes they've been less than great. I think Uber's earnings have been terrific in every way, top line uh, growth, profitability uh, growth as well. 
Um, at the same time, we are being disciplined in terms of how we grow going forward. This is why our margins are improving so much on a year-on-year basis. Free cash flow is now positive as well because of the scale that we have. Because we're in multiple businesses, both in mobility and delivery, I think we have the kind of business that can perform in all weather. But at the same time, we are being disciplined in terms of costs to make sure that as the environment, if it gets tougher, we are prepared. Dara Kosashahi, the CEO of Uber, talking to Emily Chang and myself a little bit earlier on today. Dara talking uh, about how recession-proof maybe Uber is going into what is an inevitable downturn. Up next, we're going to discuss the inevitability of that downturn and how severe it could be. A lot of Fed speakers today. That's next. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. 5.48 in the city of London, 12.48 over in New York. In the US today, seen a little bit of an adjustment in the bond markets, a little bit more hawkish messaging coming from a number of Fed speakers, basically pushing back on this idea, which seemed to come out uh, of the last Fed meeting or certainly out of the unscripted comments uh, that we saw from Jay Powell in the press conference following uh, that Fed meeting, that the Fed is kind of getting comfortable with the idea that we're kind of heading towards some sort of dovish pivot. Mary Daly making it very clear out of San Francisco that the labour market uh, really isn't uh, at the point that is consistent with with some sort of broad-based contractions. She certainly doesn't see that, though we did see a little bit of a lower uh, in the job openings data today. Charlie Evans uh, over in Chicago holding a breakfast today with a number of journalists. Like, talking about the idea of, of 25 basis points sometime after September, but also just raising the possibility that we could still do do 75. This was the kind of the pushback from the Fed that some people had been anticipating. Is it strong enough really to change significantly market pricing? Is it strong enough to disabuse the market that the idea uh, of a Fed pivot is live and real. Well, let's talk to Bloomberg Economics about this. Yelena Shulietieva joins us now to discuss. Yelena, what do you make of the comments from Daly and Charlie Evans today? Yes. Hi, Guy. Uh, So I think uh, the Fed was not really dovish in the first place, and I did not really find uh, Chair Powell's comments as uh, being dovish. I think, uh, you know, uh, the idea that everybody uh, is so supportive uh, of the 75 basis point uh, hike uh, at the last meeting just tells you that uh, there's a lot of uh, intention behind uh, this supersized sized rate hikes and uh, everybody seems to be on the same page in order to fight inflation so and this is what Mary Daly also uh, said uh, today I think um, the Fed will try to deliver as much as they can at this point while the labor market is still strong and uh, eventually they will have to back off but that eventual point will come later on as uh, as you mentioned the labor market remains uh, pretty strong so, Yelena, there seems to be some, I read a number of different things about Labour data today. Uh, one uh, from Albert Edwards, uh, SOCGEN, basically saying that you should look at the household survey. It's a much better guide to turns in, in economy as far as the labour market is concerned than the payroll data, which often you know misguides quite substantially uh, and then gets revised back down uh, years later. Um, and also, if you look at uh, you know the jolt state and stuff like that, there are some signs. I mean, you, like always, you can look into oh, that's bad, that's bad. But equally, there's a number of others you could say that's very good. I mean, do you think the Fed are just on autopilot? 
until such stage as they actually break something is that is that the message here i think the fed are smart enough to monitor the data and they do look at uh, more high frequency data such as jobless claims and uh, other economic indicators but uh, one point i would like to make uh, in regards to the jolts data, this is a fascinating piece of data and the fascinating report. The only issue with that, it's it's a small sample size and it comes with a significant lag. But this uh, report has a uh, like a ton of interesting insights. And one of them is that, as Guy previously mentioned, job openings dropped quite significantly and they dropped uh, for the second months in a row by uh, 0.3 percentage points in terms of openings rate. This is the fastest rate of decline since uh, the uh, onset of the pandemic. And that is actually telling us that openings can shrink uh, without yeah. causing too much trouble in terms of the unemployment rate. So this is the point that um, uh, one of the uh, Fed governors, Christopher Waller, was trying to make that, you know, at this point, the um, economic fundamentals are telling us that you can really reduce the number of job openings without causing too much harm, yeah. so-called soft lending. Yeah, Larry Summers <laughs> takes takes issue with that, doesn't he? Why does Larry Summers take issue with that? So there are different points of view, and uh, I think uh, in support of Larry Summers' view, you can say that, well, to fight this uh, inflation, unfortunately, that we have in the economy, you really have, the Fed really has to go um, and uh, hike rates at a, like a very fast pace, which in turn will um, slow down the economy much, much more than they want to. So... Um, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Anything is possible, and I, I am actually not going to support uh, either point of view. I mm. think they are both plausible, and you know, there will be an increase in unemployment rate. the The question is uh, the magnitude of such an increase. The beverage curve. Yes. Just, just for those for those wonks out there. Oh. <laughs> Look so at that. yeah, that's fascinating. And uh, beverage curve shows the relationship between job openings and unemployment rate. And you know, the the more job openings are in the economy, the the smaller the unemployment rate is. And uh, it goes the other way around. The key is uh, the slope of that curve. But I'm not gonna get into the <laughs> weeds of that. Don't don't let guys show off so much. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. So, I mean, we're left here with, um, obviously, you know, I presume you could cast Evans as, as a bit of a dove. He always used to be. Is Mary Daly, I know she's not a voter, but is she therefore, you know, I wouldn't associate her as being hawkish, but that was a pretty punchy statement from here today that they're nowhere, nowhere near. So, ah, I'm just not quite sure what to read, who the best person to read here. Bullard seems to set the sort of the change and in, in, in pivot and things. But, but that's what it Jackson tells you. It's, it's really so about how everybody agrees so much on the same point. Even the doves are on the same uh, page. So they, they really want to go uh, in big steps right now as yeah. as long as the labor market uh, allows yeah, them. Yeah, Kashkari was dovish, was, well, who is dovish, was also quite uh, punchy as well. Yeah. So, so I think that's a good point. Like Evans, Evans is still talking about 375 to 4 on, on funds rate by the second quarter of 2023. So kind of where we are now next year, you could see rates getting up to, to around 4%. But, and the market is definitely backing off that. 
Well, because the market years, thinks, yes. yeah, the market thinks that uh, we'll yeah. get into a recession soon, and uh, you know yeah. the, the Fed will have to step back. Yelena, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, Yelena Shulatieva, uh, joining us on the U.S. economy. Marcus and I will be doing this all again tomorrow. Make sure you tune Yay. in. Then this was the cable. Hey, this is Bloomberg. <laughs>